Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 15. Today we're going to continue our discussion of talks at the Society of Catholic Scientists conference on June 9th and 10th. And I now uh, like you to uh, go on to the next speaker, our next speaker uh, that you're going to describe from the uh, meeting of the Society of Catholic Scientists is, I believe, the founder and current director of that society, uh, Professor Stephen Barr. We've discussed him a bit before in previous episodes, but uh, maybe just say a little bit about uh, him and then go yeah, on with um, his point. Just to sum up briefly, yeah, he and, yeah. and actually a, uh, uh, an astronomer, planetary scientist, I think he's more of an astronomer. Maybe he works on exoplanets. Um, but his name is Jonathan Lunin. Um, I don't think it's Lunin. I think it's Lunin. They they kind of had a conversation, and and uh, that was that was a few years back. That was seminal to the starting of the group. So Barr, Stephen Barr, is a, a physicist at the University of Delaware, and um, so and of course he's written that book, uh, Modern Science and Ancient Faith. Uh, which we've which we've t- touched on and discussing a number of points already. Um, so yeah. he gave the second talk. Stephen Barr gave the second talk, and it was about this issue of the observer or the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. So this is a philosophically fraught issue that, fortunately, you have to have a certain <laughs> you have, to have a certain amount of physics background to even understand what's uh, going uh, on. Um, which we will will do as in, in as painless a, a problem in as painless a way as possible, um, right, right. but uh, yeah. So it uh, at least doesn't get as I was saying to you earlier. It doesn't get the same amount of it doesn't have the same amount of emotions tied up in it as uh, as evolution does. So uh, yeah, so that's a good yeah. thing. The less the less emotionally fraught it is. So so the question, and I think from the you know from my perspective as, you know, a person of faith who is not, you know, sold on any one, you know, argument for, you know, the, the existence of something beyond the material going on in my mind, like, it may turn out to be an argument that really gets us, you know, that, that really forces us to the interpretation, you know, to an interpretation of reality beyond materialism. Um, but it's right. you know, certainly a fascinating problem that is, that's an unsolved problem in, foundational physics where physics really shades off into philosophy. So so there's this very strange uh, effect. Um, you can sum it up by the term interference. So it ties back to the whole question of wave-particle duality in quantum physics, that particles often behave as waves, and waves mm-hmm. often seem to have particle-like behaviors. So at the outset, you know, so again, just, just to, to, to set the table very briefly, at, in the year 1900, everyone thought that light was a wave phenomenon. Maxwell had explained it all to us, what waves were, was this oscillate, what light wave, what light, um, and probably other forms of radiation, which they were starting to understand were really on the same continuum as light. It's just an electric wave oscillating and setting up a magnetic wave because, you know, just like in a generator where you have a magnetic field setting up an electric field, an electric field can set up a magnetic field, and Maxwell's equations can be solved such that the electric field generates a magnetic field, generates an electric field, and it just becomes this wave. 
propagating off into space. So like, oh, right. that's, that's amazing. I mean, it is. It's mathematically amazing, beautiful, fascinating. And any thought that light needed particles to explain it was, I mean, that had been swept under the rug, you know, in the early 18th century. No one worried about that anymore. Light was waves. Everyone knew that. Meanwhile, we were discovering these subatomic particles. You know, in the early 19th century, Dalton had, you know, really put, I think people were already starting to think of atoms again at that point. But Dalton really, and, and some other, you know, chemists, Berzelius, I think probably Lavoisier had to be involved in some, some fashion. Um, but by the early, you know, early to mid 19th century, we're like, okay, and matter is made of atoms, and we know the combinations. You know, we we know or we can know, we will know the exact combinations, you know, of, of elements that make up these compounds, and that's because they're made of these tiny little atoms. And in the late 19th century, we're starting to find subatomic particles. The electron being, of course, the easiest to find. So, okay, matter is particles, light is waves. We know how the universe works. Well, right. <laughs> and then, as we've talked about before, we find out that, in fact, light can only come in little bits uh, that we started to call photons, light quanta. And even worse, it turns out that uh, small particles, we can actually discern that they actually, we need to treat them as having a wavelength. Which is so so that so that's the the basics of you know the experimental evidence that you know forced people toward this interpretation of reality is involving wave particle duality. So you'll set up things like this two split experiment. Now knowing that light emerges as photons, and in fact being able to measure individual photons hitting a screen, which is an experiment that amazingly could already be done in the early 20th century or close. Huh. Um, you could. You can, you can set up the experiment where there is a light source and two slits, and you could be even, you know, letting loose. If, if you think of it as a particle, you know, okay, so this light particle, it's going to be sent off in a random direction. Most likely it's going to hit the screen, but if it hits one of the slits, it's going to go onto the second screen. It's going to hit the second screen, and you know what, you know, based on the laws of, um, you know, I mean, just geometry, you know, you know what that pattern would look like. There'll be just these two maxima behind the two slits, right? Mm. That's not mm. what you see. <laughs> and in fact, you know that's not what, that's, that couldn't be what you could see because you know how light behaves. And you know that light, you know, you know that there's centuries of experimental evidence that light behaves in waves. And waves have interference phenomena, which means there are going to be these interlocking, you know, maxima and minima. And so there's going to be several you know, rises and falls, depending if we have, you know, if, we, if we're emitting photons of a given energy, which means they have a given frequency, that means that even if we set them up one at a time, if we send them out one at a time, they're going to define, once, once you've added up a hundred or a thousand or enough of them to get your statistics, you know, down to the point that you, you know, your, your pattern on the screen looks like pretty much the, the laws of probability for where the photon is going to go, you get an interference pattern. What is this photon interfering with itself? You know, alternate universe versions of itself? Well, that, that interpretation is now out there. But hmm. so that's the, the problem. And the really quirky thing is if you somehow set up the experiment in such a way that you can know where the photon, you know, which slit the photon has gone through, if you set up the closest physical equivalent that you can to uh, a, quote, Maxwell demon who, you know, <laughs> atoms from one chamber to another, you know, and he can just pick which ones have high energy and which ones have low energy. Um, yeah. 
if you set up a sort of monitor, a gatekeeper in these slits, so you know, oh, this photon went through that slit. Oh, this photon went through this slit. The interference pattern disappears. Right. That's really weird. <laughs> that's really, really weird. And so that's the, that's the measurement problem. That's the crux of the measurement problem is that, you know, there is this very open and, and you know, of course, there's been a lot more thinking and a lot more uh, experimental work than just two slit experiments done to try to understand what is going on when we basically make some sort of measurement. And so does that, there, there is, and there's this open interpretation that what's going on depends on the physical world basically interacting with a mind. And you have what's called the collapse of the wave function. So up until you make some sort of measurement, the particle that you're about to measure, you, you actually have to treat it, just like in this two-slit experiment, you actually have to treat it as not being in one place or the other. It's going to be in this indeterminate state where it's a, basically a, a wave of probabilities interfering with itself until you make a measurement and you collapse the wave function. That's, so that's the weird you know, behavior that we need to understand physically and philosophically. I mean, physically, okay, I know that if I do this, this happens, and I know that if I do this, this happens. But philosophically, yeah. what does that mean? And then, of course, there's a feedback because if you if you get to a level of explanation of you know of an idea as to why that happened, the physicist in you will then look around and say, maybe there's a way I could test that. Maybe that makes a pro a, a prediction that I can actually test, which we'll get to when we talk to uh, talk about the next speaker. Um, mm -hmm. But the so the idea is that. You, and and this whole question of um, where you know the observer is a tricky one because you have to define who's the observer. What's an observer? Does it have to be a human being? And that gets into the question of something called decoherence, which is something a concept that's you know a term that's gotten used in the last fifty years to attempt to yeah. describe because because this whole idea is very unsettling. If if what's actually required is a human mind. Um, that starts to be it's that that gets to the point where even as you know a person of faith where you're looking for some reason for there to be an immaterial soul that you know things are interacting with that would force you know reality down one of these paths once you start trying to think of well i mean human history is long enough right, right. so if you uh, if you're you're digging up you know if you're an archaeologist and you're digging up something a mound in Ohio that's 4,000 years old, um, you know, are you collapsing wave functions? <laughs> is, mm. is everything inside this mound, or is everything inside the Earth, for that matter, everything inside the sun existing in some sort of indeterminate state until I somehow collapse the wave function? What does that, you know, what does that even mean? And that was actually a question that someone asked at, yeah. the, um, at the end of Stephen Barr's talk. Um, uh -huh. So Barr really kind of, I have a, dif a difficult, I had a difficult time identifying sort of a thesis for his talk. He was really kind of laying out what the situation was from the perspective of a physicist. 
And the mm-hmm. thing about physicists, you know, we all have we all have different places in the ecosystem. The internal, uh, you know, the interior uh, geologist says in me, uh, we physicists have to. They exist at a level where they have to simplify things down to, you know, the very basics. And then, as we've talked about before, there are all these emergent levels of complexity. Right. And that's, you know, it's going to take us a long time to get to the point where we really have worked out at these higher levels of complexity the consequences of a lot of these debates about what's going on at sort of the microscopic level. Mm. So, you know, I I am not satisfied that we have that answer. Obviously, you know, I would need to go, you know, peruse the literature and especially this whole idea of decoherence. So So the decoherence idea, to the degree that I understand it, is that you can, in a system that's not, so if you set up your two-slit experiment, you need to, to really run a good two-slit experiment, you need a lot of, um, you need to create a very pristine environment, so to speak. And in particular, you'll need to shield it. So you want you want to be doing your two-slit experiment, if you can, you want to be doing it inside like a two-inch thick lead box. Because you don't want, for example, cosmic waves to be interacting with your photon or your electron or whatever particle you're trying to do your two-slit experiment with. If you, right. if you have a lot of these outside particles interacting with it and you just focus on the behavior of the electron without taking those other particles into account, because those are all interacting with your, um, your sort of test particle, you start to get things that look more and more like the the observed situation, right? Where it basically shows classical physics behavior. Yeah, I just went through one of these slits and they're just two maxima. Right. That's, but that's only because you're not, um, you're not studying the whole system because you have all of these, you know, cosmic ray particles, whatever, you know, high energy charged particles or photons are interacting with your test particle and they are carrying away a lot of this sort of uncertainty, in a sense, to sort of boil it down um, and, and hopefully not tremendously oversimplify it. But they are, yeah, they, they are absorbing a lot of this uncertainty and taking it God knows where because you're not even measuring them. So that's, that's part of the issue with, with decoherence is that it's, um, it appears to be a very tricky thing to think about consistently. So in, in our, you know, in the example of, of, you know, a system, you know, like this, the interior of this mound, or of course I'm thinking about the interior of this mountain range is just 300 million years old, and you know, you're you're drilling a shaft through a mountain in Pennsylvania and encountering this metamorphic rock that no human being has ever laid eyes on before. Um, what, what is happening to, well, you know, all of all of the atoms inside that rock have been interacting with each other. And eventually, by you know a, an indirect chain of events interacting with the outside, so they have been involved in this decoherence phenomenon too, and that's part of the answer, and that that's certainly going to be part of the answer. But that's different than the collapse of a wave function from the observer. The question is how different, and that means you really need to get into the details. Yeah, really, really. And now, when 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 Dr. Barr and his colleagues uh, talk about this need to uh, uh, immerse uh, further in the details and uh, to really expect this uh, thought process to go on for a long time, 
is it is it mostly in the context of the relatively narrow field of the philosophy of science or is he saying that uh, this is something that physicists themselves uh, philosophers as a group uh, that uh, that this has to uh, and perhaps theologians ultimately is is it something that's really going to bring everybody into a conversation necessarily well this is i mean yeah the the whole point of bringing it up i would think at this uh conference and and to bring it up at a conference with this theme is to you know is to recognize that depending on your answer to this measurement problem to this problem of the observer and the collapse of the wave function you know that may you know that may be just as relevant as anything ed phaser was talking about about intentionality and rationality in terms of our understanding, I mean, because, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, really. This whole, you know, everything in this physical universe, you know, is connected by some chain, however indirect, to, you know, <laughs> the six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You know, you can, ex <laughs> you can extrapolate that to however many degrees of connection you'd need between, you know, us and a galaxy out at, you know, I don't know, Redshift 1 or something like that. But uh, it's, it's pretty indirect, but nevertheless, we are all part of the same observable universe, and we've interacted with each other in some way. Um, and, and, in, and in particular, of course, what you believe about the significance of mind in, in the observer problem is, you know, you're, you're going to add that to the, to the list of things you have, to, you have to integrate if you're going to have a coherent belief about what your mind actually is. Right. Wow. Yes. It's uh, it's a serious a serious business of thought there in a wide ranging way, uh, but again, fascinating. And uh, I had no idea that uh, there was this uh, variety of uh, conversation going on at the conference. Uh, thanks for that summation of of that uh, uh, talk. And of course, we'll be talking more in future episodes about uh, Stephen Barr and and about a lot of these folks. I'm sure. Why don't we plan to move on to another speaker?